please remain standing for our scripture reading in 1 John chapter 2 verses 26 and 27 chapter 2 verses 26 through 27 John writes I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it it has taught you, abide in him. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. We are continuing our march through this remarkable second chapter of 1 John. Lord willing, we'll finish it up on the 25th of this month. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, thank you for Jesus, who is our abiding feast in the sacrament, yes, but also in the sermons. We are built up through the word of God. We thank you that this word is inscripturated, but it must be preached faithfully from your church. And it brings us to the word, the logos of God, Jesus Christ, the ultimate word through whom you created the universe. Thank you now that you recreate us more into his image through the word of God. We pray that you'll do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the teaching found in today's short scripture lesson, which Elder Craig just read, 26 and 27 verses out of Second or 1 John chapter 2, are some of the most amazing and life-changing ones that I can imagine. Actually, for me, it's been a profoundly impactful one on my own heart, especially as I combine that recently providentially from the various teachings we've had from the great Robert Godfrey, not only in our Christian education setting here in the morning on Sundays, but even uh, through others, like when he was teaching about the American Puritans' view of post-millennialism and their optimistic outlook upon life. When I combine texts like this with that, it is a great and wonderful perspective, very encouraging. The bottom line, dear saints of God, and I speak only to all of you who are in Christ, is this. We have tremendous freedom and liberty today because we need worry about nothing at all. We are liberated from all those things that the world is in total bondage. It's a wonderful blessing not to have to worry about anything in the world, including those things that would, if they could, wrench us away from the source of our life, our joy, our hope, and our happiness, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John teaches us today that that is virtually impossible. It can never succeed against those who have the anointing of God upon them. All true saints have that. Therefore, let's make it our gospel goal this Lord's Day to bless God for his anointing of us, keeping us in Christ. We're looking together at 1 John 2, 26 and 27. The title, God's Anointing Over the World's Deceit, the Doctrine, God's Anointing of His Churchmen is Invincible, I-N-V-I-N-C-I-B-L-E, can't be beaten. There's probably not another place in the Holy Scripture that I personally am aware of where this divine anointing is described in such unconquerable or unbeatable terms and tones. In other words, 
What God is actually saying to us today through his inscripturated word is that the Holy Spirit wrought anointing upon you whereby God regenerated you in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit is as strong as heaven itself, which is the same thing to say it's as strong as the Holy Trinity and the three members thereof of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there is no one and nothing stronger than them. Indeed, it is true that God's anointing of his churchmen is invincible. First, Real threats really do come our way. Now, this is a very important thing for me to say and state this morning because otherwise someone might draw the wrong conclusion, and maybe even understandably, that God's anointing of a soul somehow cancels out the vicious and violent assaults against our hearts and souls by those who wish to rob us of our inheritance in Christ. And nothing can be further from the truth. In fact, the anointing we have, the baptisms we have in Jesus Christ, is the bullseye upon our hearts. We're the only ones, really, that the world, the flesh, and the devil is concerned to bring down because everybody else is already vanquished and destroyed and leveled down to slavery and bondage. We're the only ones still standing who are liberated souls who have the full measure of the image of God and the recreation of that image in our new life in Jesus Christ as his church. Now, are these threats real? Yes, they are. They are not fake and they're not illusory. If this was not the case, then why would the great tender apostle of love, John, have written these words in verse 26? I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Every true saint is also one who is the object of deceit and lies, falsehoods. We've been talking a lot about you live in a world, especially a religious world, of complete falsehood, lying. Most of the religious world, let alone the rest of the world, is just a pack of lies. And we have to actually realize that. It's the truth. And one of the key lessons that we Christian churchmen need to learn is this. There is no logical or necessary disjunctive between God's absolute work of grace in the hearts of his elect and redeemed churchmen, i.e. his anointing, and the fact that real dangers really do exist, i.e., quoting again, those who are trying to deceive you. And the linchpins that resolve these two great dynamics are God's means. In this case, his means of grace. And remember, God uses means for everything. Last Sunday, I, in our prayer, I prayed that God would bring his elect to us. I'm starting to pray that way much more. You know, God's going to save his elect, but guess what? He's going to use means. Your prayers that God would save the elect. Isn't that interesting? He could save the elect without our prayers. But he uses our prayers. And so we we pray that. Everything operates in the means of grace. To put it bluntly, dears, assurance in Christ never leads to sloth in the regenerated believer in Jesus Christ. Real threats really do come our way, but none of them can de-Christianize us, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-I-Z-E, 
E. I do want to be clear, especially in light of last Sunday's sermon and today's sermon, we, in complete agreement with the rest of the scriptures, are not arguing or saying that real Christians may not, in fact, be tripped up by all kinds of forces in the fallen world, included at the top of that list religious ones, which are the most nefarious and the ones that will incur the strictest judgment on the great day of wrath. But what we are boldly declaring, again in conjunction with all the rest of the Holy Scripture, is that a regenerated or truly born-again soul in the church can not only not be lost to perdition, but that he or she simply cannot be de-Christianized in the sense of losing his or her distinct covenantal identity as a church follower or disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the world brings this tremendous pressure against us, and it still cannot de-Christianize us. It can kill us, it can murder us, it can persecute us, it can marginalize us, it can do all that stuff it likes to do, but it can't take our identity of Jesus from us. And a big part of this protection will be the impossibility of a true saint of the faithful church to ever believe a fatal heresy that would condemn a person's soul to hell. It's impossible for those who are anointed by God. Are there real Christians who are badly taught? Of course there are. Again, picking up on Dr. Godfrey's instruction, many of our evangelical friends are told that they are to affirm the Bible's teachings. But then, when it is culturally uncomfortable to do so, they are free to discard them. That's dishonest. That's not honorable. That's not right. What is a person in that position to do? Find Jesus in a true church. Let's look at these two interesting verses, 26 and 27, out of 1 John chapter 2, and marvel at, the teaching ministry of God's anointing of us as children. Now, in just these two verses for today, the word teacher as cognates are used three times. On top of that, obviously, the Apostle John is teaching. So we have all this teaching taking place right here. And this is very significant teaching. The teaching ministry of the church, in fact, of the world, always starts in the faithful pulpit. All education, all knowledge, all truth that is disseminated by God to the world starts in the faithful pulpit. Works its way down into the Christian education ministry of the church, in the church and in the home. The catechetical instruction that we give adults, but especially children, in the church and in the home. And then the fact that the families of the church spread and propagate the gospel from generation to generation through their faithful churchmanship and love for God and raising children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And that is an unbeatable force, dears. The world doesn't have a chance against that. Therefore, let us today study the teaching ministry of God's anointing of us as children. First, it anticipates liars and their treacheries. Verse 26 I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. 
You know, I haven't kept track of how many times John in less than two chapters has said, I write these things to you, to you, to you. He's done a lot. So he, he meant a lot by his writing. And he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Only a fool, dears, would think that Satan and fallen human beings would not try to wrench from us, rob from us, take from us, heist from us, the glorious liberties we enjoy in Jesus Christ, which they don't. You know, part of Satan's problem is a sullen, jealous spirit. And so are the people in the world. And the way they typically seek to pull off these heists, if you will, is through deceit or lying, even as that was emphasized very strongly, not only in this sermon, but last week's as well. So John, as a very loving, caring, gracious, tender, but very strong shepherd of the church, Christ-adoring, warns his spiritual children, see verses 18a and 28a, about real human beings who are trying to deceive them. And I need to tell you, there are real human beings out there trying to deceive you, too. I actually think probably the greatest threat to the happiness and growth and grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus among most Reformed people is the evangelical religion, which is a strange thing to say. And maybe 30 years ago, 40 years ago, we wouldn't have said it, but we say it today. There are a lot of things out there trying to deceive you. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. And sometimes I think that some of today's Christians are willing to play fast and loose with the world's perversions, thinking that by so doing they are somehow serving people who are devoted to those sins. But the Holy Scriptures leave no room for that, and we do not have the right or the stupidity or the leeway to do something like that. Too much is at stake, and frankly, truthfully, we're no match for the world if we play on their terms. We're not to deal with them on their terms. We deal with them on God's terms, which are our terms, and those terms are inviolable and undefeatable. The teaching ministry of God's anointing of us as children, it anticipates liars and, tre- and their treachery. I hope you're not naive. I hope none of you, not just you young people, but you older ones. I hope you're not naive. Look, people are out, they want to take from you what you have. Paul tells Timothy and the pastorals, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard it. That's not just for pastors. That's for every true Christian. You've been given a treasure in Jesus Christ that's so incredible No wonder the world wants to take it from you. We're willing to share it, but it must be on God's terms. We don't throw our pearls before swine, to quote Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. And then verse 27a, it is the special grace of the Holy Spirit. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Verse 27a is sometimes 
been wrongly and I, I must say rather ridiculously interpreted as saying that Christians do not need any human instruction. This is sort of the lone ranger Christian sitting on the mountain with his Bible, thinks he has Christ, he doesn't, he thinks he has everything, he doesn't even have the church, he doesn't have the means of grace, he doesn't have anything. But people think that, but hey, I don't need any human instruction. I don't need to listen to a pastor or a ruling elder or a deacon or a fellow church member because I'm just too good for that. And a lot of times they'll look at this verse here. Look at it again. We're going to elucidate it in the proper light. He says, the anointing you received abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now lest we be confused about that, I will easily put to rest their argument, and it's a simple way. Two points. First, a human being himself, the Apostle John, is actually teaching this. So there's a human being teaching it, okay? God used the agent, the Apostle. And secondly, even in the case of those wayward souls who claim that no one needs human instruction, they, i.e. humans, are employing human instruction to make their false claim. So it is a self-contradictory one. But what the Apostle John really means by verse 27a is more interesting and more important. When he says, you have no need that anyone should teach you, there are two parts to this explanation. The first one has two parts to it. First of all, John means that this instruction by the Holy Spirit is by the Holy Spirit, and it is therefore permanently sealed in the souls of all truly elect and redeemed church people. And secondly, John means that his children, quote-unquote, the atoned-for people of Christ church, so well know this truth that in fact it cannot be eradicated from their souls or taken away from them. In this sense, in those senses, they do not need to be taught. But despite that, John does it anyway as a means of reinforcing what they already know. Which is interesting. And what is the power behind this anointing? The fact that all the regenerate Christians have it abiding in them, us, verse 27a. The anointing is the regeneration by the Holy Spirit of our dead, lost, rebellious, God-hating souls conceived in sin and rebellion, darkness, despair, and complete death. Whereby he applies the atonement and the obedience of Jesus Christ to us by imputation. So Jesus Christ's perfect obedience is imputed to us, and God accepts that in us. Jesus Christ's perfect atonement, whereby he shed his blood for our sins, is imputed to us, and all of our sins are forgiven. This is called the gospel. It's beautiful news. The teaching ministry of God's anointing of us as children, it anticipates liars and their treacheries. You should go out and anticipate them too. Don't have to be afraid of them. Don't have to be nervous about it. Don't have to be putting that as your main thing, but just be wise. It is the special grace of the Holy Spirit. And finally, its main function is to keep us united to the Godhead, verse 27b. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you abide in him. 
Again, John is telling his fellow Christian churchmen that they unqualifiedly possess this comprehensive and absolutely true instruction from God via this anointing of God. And yet, the apostle still insists on teaching them to, quote, abide in him. God probably mostly in reference to the Holy Spirit here because he's the one that abides in us as he resides in us. So two seemingly contradictory, but not at all contradictory, dynamics are at work in us regenerated Christian churchmen. First, the fact that God's anointing has come on to us and is in us, and this anointing is virtually inviolable. In other words, it is unable to be countermanded or obliterated. Secondly, that even in view of that fact, that the anointing has come upon us and it cannot be removed from us, even in view of that, We who are in Christ are to self-consciously abide in the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But is all this not really the whole essence of the Christian life that we talk about every Sunday morning, especially as it is studied through the lenses of justification and sanctification? I think it is. Is it not the case that the work of redemption is completed and it cannot be thwarted? And that the process of sanctification is simply the God-given reality of our living by faith consistently in the light of that truth, the person of Jesus Christ. Dears, as always, we have some exciting application this morning. Let's look at it now. Why God's anointing of us is our unconquerable secret weapon. Some of you probably saw that coming. God's anointing or our regeneration, which is to say the same thing as our secret weapon, in the sense that the world does not know we possess it. And if it did know it, it wouldn't believe it anyway. Satan, on the other hand, in fact, does know about this secret weapon, but because he is a good student of the Bible, he understands that. And he accepts God's theology as true. It would do him no good to do otherwise. But despite this, the devil does not know indubitably or without any doubt who the regenerate Christians are as opposed to those who are not born again. Let us now enjoy the doctrine of why God's anointing of us is our unconquerable secret weapon. First, because the world can do nothing about the fact that we possess this. How would you like to fight a foe? who had a supernaturally infinite storehouse of firepower that included everything heaven would offer, and you went into the battle with your own paltry human armaments, not knowing what it was that your opponent possessed at his disposal. Obviously, none of us would want to be in that position, but that's precisely the status of the world as it faces you and seeks to bring you down. The church And all of this strength is traceable back to our anointing, i.e. our regenerations in Christ applied to us by the Holy Spirit. This anointing is powerful, it is divine, and it is heavenly. So the next time you feel a little bit worn down, maybe this week, or weakened, or without strength, and we all get there, I do too, times where you just feel exhausted, you're needy, you feel weak, you feel vulnerable, we all get there. There are a lot of causes for these things. Some are spiritual, some are, quote, natural, whatever. 
Whenever we get there, I encourage you to consider doing as the great King David did in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6b, where he, quote, strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And if you look at that text, he was in deep doo-doo at that point right there. And when things got really bad, he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What did King David have going for him that could never be taken from him, could not be removed from him, could not be heisted from him, stolen from him, wrenched from him? What did he have? He had God's anointing upon him. And you read about it, and I reference for you 1 Samuel 16, 12. Why God's anointing of us is our unconquerable secret weapon. And it really is, dears. Now, it doesn't release us from the privilege and joy and responsibility to live out that anointing by being faithful in Christ and his church. It doesn't like give us a free blank, a free pass to just do nothing. But it gives us a great sense of security and also power. Because the world can do nothing about the fact that we possess this, the impregnable blocker, blocker of all serious theological error. And again, I, I, I don't want to imply that real Christians, you and I, myself included, are not susceptible to uh, much less serious uh, errors. Uh, after all, we're still in process. None of us have perfect theology. We do claim, and rightly so, to believe in the true religion. And we have wonderful and the best catechisms and creeds and confessions that the church has ever produced in 2,000 years of New Covenant church life. But we're not saying that we cannot still be susceptible to more minor ones. But the fatal ones cannot affect us. Isn't it nice to know that? That we have an antidote to all lethal doctrinal fallacies? We regenerate Christians, to use modern lingo, are immunized from anything that could or would otherwise kill us off. The anointing we have been speaking of is emblematic of the blood of Jesus Christ and the spirit of the living God. And there's virtually nothing that can overcome those invincible forces. Will the world, other human beings, and even, even our own consciences seek to condemn us? To say you're a sinner, you're lost, God doesn't love you, you're under condemnation. Will they do that? You betcha they will. But they're no match for God's anointing of us as church saints. I'm not talking about people outside. I'm not talking about people that aren't faithful in the church. But for those who are, how may anyone else come to share in this most blessed truth and glorious grace? How? By coming by grace to God through Jesus Christ by faith which is the inevitable result of regeneration, which precedes the profession of faith. So do pray for the people that we'll be speaking to this week and always, especially on the riverfront. There are elect people in this area who are not yet in Christ. I think that is a safe statement. May God bring them to us. May we provide them a home. 
Beloved, God's anointing over the world's deceit is a great comfort for us in the true church. Let us bless the Lord for his anointing over the world's deceit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, yes, there is the world's deceit, but your anointing is more powerful than any of it. We thank you that it has shielded us from all evil and ill. Thank you for Jesus, the glorious one that unites us to the Holy Trinity through his human nature, where he gathers us up, brings us to his heart, brings us right into the lap of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we will sit at his table in heaven in just a few moments, Lord willing. We pray with thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.